Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. It's the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. I always have a lot of energy in these intros because this is one of my favorite moments of the week where I get to record the intro for the show. And this episode is a whopper because my guest is Amy Vitali. Now, Amy is a National Geographic photographer, but this this show today is not expressly about photography. What I wanted to do is I'm really right now focused for some reason on human connection, right? On how do we listen to our inner compass? There's so much stuff going on in the world right now. And I've got a a ton of feedback coming in from all y'all who listen to the show, uh, pay attention to me and or creative live um, out there in the internet and the world. And I just hear this craving for human connection, for compass, for direction. And so what I thought I'd do is go into um, some of the content that we've recorded and and try and surface this stuff that helps us find this connection and find our direction in a way that very few things that are out there in the world today are are helpful in doing. And so this bit from Amy Vitali, uh, again, National Geographic photographer, is so helpful in this end goal. Now, um, I'll say that I'll just give you a little background here on Amy. Um, again, you're in for a treat here. So uh, Amy was in the Creative Life Studios as a part of a thing called Photo Week. She is a photojournalist and a filmmaker and uh, has traveled to more than 100 countries. Now, I think the last time I counted, I was in the like 85 or something range. And I'm, what is it? Chris, Chris Gillibo, another friend of ours. He's done a, he was the first person under the age of 35 to do all 195 countries. Point being is Amy is insanely well-traveled. Uh, I consider myself having flown millions and millions of air miles and Amy's got me whooped. Um, she's done all this with a camera in her hand as well. She's lived in mud huts, um, war zones. She's, you know, come down with malaria. Um, and she's even donned a panda suit, um, as a part of living out her dream to travel, study remote cultures and document, um, this with a camera in order to not just explain the world to others, but to herself. Um, so, you can also imagine that Amy, as a part of this journey, has uh, been bearing witness not only to violence and to conflict, but also to insane beauty and the power of the human spirit. And so this passionate talk from Amy, I wanted to surface here on the show. Again, she does reference photographs like in this image here, for example, she'll say. And if you're listening to this, obviously you can't see those images. I, it doesn't matter. I promise it doesn't matter. What I want you to listen to is the conviction, the belief and the journey, the rather uncertain, but valuable journey that Amy has put herself on that I believe we all have the ability to do. We all have the ability to put ourselves on a journey. And that, again, the the journey of awakening, of discovery, of self-discovery, of human connection, and of our inner callings or and our compass. So uh, again, I'll, I'll just let you know that this is a beautiful story um, by Amy, and it's also available. There's The visual version is available on Creative Live if you search her name. It's A-M-I- V-I-T-A-L-E. She is a master of photography, a legend, and an amazing photojournalist who's going to help you understand, not through her photography explicitly, but through her journey and life journey about how we, we, there's, there's just stuff we can learn from her in orienting towards our biggest dreams and our biggest self-discovery. So I'm getting out of the way. I hope you enjoyed this particular narrative from an amazing woman great photographer, Amy Vitale. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is sponsored by Creative Live for Business. This is different than the regular old Creative Live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. 
If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. I really just wanted to talk about my beginnings to my own journey. And I'm actually one of the most unlikely people to be standing up here today because if you knew me as a, a you know, child and even a teenager, I was incredibly, incredibly introverted, gawky, shy, and just afraid of the world. And my parents, bless their hearts, um, thought that maybe putting me in front of the camera and dressing me up as a lion might somehow give me courage. <laughs> but I never got my courage from being in front of the camera. Really, where I got my courage was the second I picked up a camera, I felt like superwoman. All of a sudden, I could go out and engage with people, and I had a reason to be there. And um, it just made the world a lot less scary. And, and then the more amazing thing which happened was after uh, taking pictures, this is actually in Bangladesh, literally diving in to um, make a film about our changing climate. And, um, you know, it, it did give me these superpowers, really. When you put a camera in my hand, I turn into another human being. And, um, and the more amazing thing, though, was not that it empowered me the most incredible thing was the power of storytelling. I mean, it is the oldest uh, way of communicating. 40,000 years ago, uh, on the you know, rocks, of, um, on the you know, caves and paintings, people were communicating and, um, and telling stories. And I, I think that is what um, drew me to this medium, because I realized that um, actually I can amplify other people's voices and, and really, um, you know, I think connect people and, and, you know, across cultures and countries and, and remind us of all the things that we have in common. And that's what really drew me in in the beginning. But today I want to talk about creativity and inspiration. And where does that come from for me? Um, this is an image from a place called Kashmir. And at the time, I was the only woman journalist working there um, in a very conservative culture. And it was very unusual for women to be here. And um, this was actually a terrible scene unfolding in front of us. And like everybody here, I was so focused on the scene in front of us that I, um, I got tunnel vision. I, you know, I had the camera pressed up against my face. I, um, I literally, you know, just didn't even turn around and see. And this was the image which was right behind me that I think really told the story of this, this place of Kashmir and how connected people are to their landscape. Um, but like most things in life, we get so obsessed with one perspective that we close ourselves off to everything else that's happening around us. And sometimes the story is right there like right next to you. But um, I guess that is my, you know, if you get one thing out of the talk today, it's just that. Um, turn around, 
get some fresh perspective because tunnel vision can be the death of creativity. Um, and then I also want to talk about uh, another, this is another, you know, I get to do incredible things like climb up on top of a glacier, also in Kashmir. And this was, I think, 13 or 14,000 feet. You can imagine it gets really cold at night. And I had planned to spend three nights on top of this glacier. So I'm from Montana and I brought all my warm clothes, down sleeping bag, some food, and started up the mountain in just my t-shirt and the, um, the cameras on my back. And I hired this porter named Subir to help me carry uh, all my warm clothes and the food. And about halfway up the mountain, I'm looking, and I, I mean, there's tens of thousands of people, and I'm like, Subir is gone, disappeared. He took off with everything. <laughs> and I, I mean, I had this like, you know, paralyzing moment where I just thought, I know what it's like on top of a mountain at night in just a t-shirt. And I just thought, I think I, I might need to turn around now and go back down. And then, um, you know, I looked around and I just thought, you know, if these people are doing it, I, I, I should too. And um, I kept going, climbed up to the top of the mountain. And guess what? It turned out to be the best thing that ever happened. Why? Because that little bit of suffering, you know, the cold that I felt, the, um, you know, the, all of that actually created empathy. It literally allowed me to feel what it was like to be one of those pilgrims climbing up this mountain. And all of a sudden, you know, I realized that is, you know, empathy is the most important skill or thing that we need to be, um, frankly, a human being, but um, to be a storyteller too. Um, empathy is the wellspring of creativity. You know, really, um, all of a sudden, you know, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone just a little bit um, and stepping into the shoes of others is um, really the most important thing that we can do. And I think that it, it made me closer to these people and, um, and it closed that distance between us. So I want to flash back. This was one of the first stories I ever did. I was still very much an amateur. And on a whim, I applied for this grant. It's the Alexia Foundation grant um, for peace, world peace and cultural understanding. That's the full name. And um, I was still very much, you know, very green. And I just thought, oh, I'll apply for it. Never in a million years thinking that I would get it. And much to my delight and sheer horror, I got it. And it was to go to um, this, this tiny country in West Africa called Guinea-Bissau. And um, you know, I planned to stay for two weeks. I ended up living there for half a year. And I learned the language of Pular. It's a Fulani tribe. And um, you know, actually, when I packed my bags, I packed 100 rolls of film. My, at that time, it wasn't digital. Um, and uh, malaria medicine. And what else? And an English Pular dictionary. And you know, with a lot of trepidation, I got on the plane, flew to Guinea-Bissau, and landed. And then I got to the capital, and I bought two chickens and two big sacks of rice. And off I went into the center of the country. And what I discovered blew my mind. I mean, it was just nothing I had read about. You, um, I think we get two very distinct narratives about the whole continent of Africa in mainstream media. Um, there's one perspective, and it is war, famine, plagues, like Ebola. Or you can go over and get the other perspective, which is you can go on a beautiful safari and see exotic animals. Now, both those narratives are true. They are, but I found a third narrative, which was so beautiful. Um, it was uh, people deeply connected to the natural world. They believed spirits lived inside this tree. Um, you know, I, I just, I learned so much and those weeks turned into months and those months turned into half a year and um, I got malaria. Um, the, the, everybody took care of me, I survived. And I, um, you know, more than that, I just, I, I learned um, 
about the poetry and the beauty of this life. And, and actually, I stayed till the end of the dry season when all the food ran out. And I remember all we had were those sacks of rice that I brought with me. And we shared one bowl of rice every day with um, the, I was sharing a house with these women and their children. And that's all we had. And that's when I really understood what hunger felt like. And I remember staring up at the little baby mangoes when they started growing and every day I'd ask the kids, okay, so how much longer till those mangoes ripen? I was dreaming about a mango. But, um, you know, it was, they taught me so much. This is Halima and, um, and her first baby. And, you know, to the women, I was a complete mystery. They're like, how can you be in your early 20s, no husband, no children, and you don't even know how to get water out of the well? They couldn't believe that. And by the way, have you seen the women when they carry, they look so graceful. Let me tell you what really happens. You start walking with this huge like 50 pound bucket on your head and it starts gaining velocity. And literally by the time I was at the mud hut, I was just covered in water and there was this much left. But they um, were patient with me and they took care of me and they taught me so much. Um, you know, and there's just stories and even in the language and I think everywhere you go, people always in the morning ask the same ritual of questions. How'd you sleep? How's your body? If you have children, how are the children? And then in, um, in this village, Dembel Jampur, they would always ask one question at the end of that ritual, which was, did you all wake up one by one or all together? And it took me a long time to figure that out. I was like, what do they mean? What do they mean? And one day I finally got it. Because the children are all nestled up against you at night. And it means that if you all woke up together at once, um, something terrible happened. But if you woke up one by one, you woke up to the gentle rhythms of life. So I just loved that language even was this just um, really poetic, beautiful way of understanding the culture. And that was their way of asking, are you OK? Um, and anyway, the, you, know, you can look at these pictures, and it, it may look so different from this world that you all are in right now. But that's not what actually surprised me. The thing that really surprised me was how much we shared. And this is Alio. He got a hold of my soap. And on my last night in Guinea-Bissau, all the, the children were asking me a million questions about my return home to America. Do you have mangoes in America? Do you have cashews? And then. Alio looks up at this big, beautiful full moon, and he asked me, do you have a moon in America? And you know, I think of him every time I see a full moon, and I really, I love the moon as this metaphor. It's like this collective third eye for all of us. And whether we believe it or understand it, we share the same planet. We, you know, there's this oneness and, um, and I knew when I left Guinea-Bissau what my mission was. I knew that I wanted to talk about the stories that connect us. And, um, and you know, after that, I came back and I weirdly, um, I don't know why, I, I became a war photographer, mostly because I thought that that's the way to tell powerful stories. I thought that those were the most powerful stories that needed to be told. And I went to places you may have heard of, like, like Afghanistan, to places that you may not have heard of, like Angola, which was already in its 26th year of a brutal civil war, four million people displaced. The world had turned their back on it. Believe me, there is very little meritocracy in death. And I pitched the story to all these editors, and their eyes would kind of glaze over. They said, Amy, nobody cares. But I knew I had a friend that was working there. And I was like, well, I care. And I went and ended up getting the story in um, media all over the world. And, um, and you know, I, I did feel like it's important to shine a light on the stories that are not always being told. And then I was actually sent to, uh, to Gaza during the second intifada. And um, when I arrived, you know, it was first it began with kids throwing rocks and that quickly escalated into people dying. And I found myself in, in, in the middle of another brutal conflict. And I was asked to bring back the most, you know, violent images. And I did that. I got close to the action, so close to the action that I almost died. If you look at the upper right hand side of that frame, that's actually a building being vaporized. And fortunately, as I was running to get inside, 
inside this building, um, the batteries in my camera all dropped out. And in that moment, when I'm stopped and I'm picking all the batteries up, um, a helicopter with a missile comes out of nowhere and just blows up that building. But I was actually heading right for it before that happened. So, you know, I, I was really lucky that day. And, um, you know, I was just doing what I thought the audience wanted and certainly I thought my editors wanted. And um, I had to ask myself at that point, were, were we unconsciously only telling one half the story at best and, you know, and maybe was it even a lie at worst? Because there were plenty of other stories all around us. The stories that frankly allow us to relate to one another as human beings, the stories of love. This is a, you know, I was walking down the street one day and I heard music coming out of this building. And I wandered in and there, this expression of love in the middle of all of this chaos really just captured my heart. And I just thought, why aren't we telling these stories too? You know, these are the ones that allow us to see each other, you know, is just wanting the same things in life as every human being does. And so this was a real turning point for me. And I just thought, why don't we show these kinds of images too? I mean, um, do we just think that the good things, the things um, you know, that connect us are somehow not worth publishing? Are they just too boring? Um, you know, I just wanted to offer a broader vision of what the world really looks like and um, what would happen if we chose to illuminate the things that unite us as human beings and um, not only emphasize our differences. And so after covering all these conflicts, I decided to go to Storytellers Paradise, India, um, you know, uh, uh, the subcontinent of 300 million gods and twice as many stories. And there were stories everywhere. Um, I, you know, it was my dream. I was in search of the land of Gandhi and yoga and um, India is full of surprises. And it's, um, it really is the storyteller's dream. And this is where I went from being close to the action to being close to people. And um, the one place that really captured my heart was this place called Kashmir. And it, is, it has been described since the 15th century as paradise on earth. It's set in the Himalayas. It is so beautiful. And, um, and uh, it's also been described as in the Guinness Book of World Records, the most militarized place on the planet and the longest pending conflict. So, you know, you had both these extremes. And this picture, to me, really illustrates that. You know, you see the little hearts painted on these boats. They're meant for lovers and honeymooners and tourists. And they've been taken over by soldiers patrolling this lake for militancy. So the story of Kashmir is basically India and Pakistan have been fighting over this piece of land since 1947. And it's never been resolved. And, um, and I ended up spending four years living here and trying to go deeper. And, you know, the one piece I always felt about it was that it was always described in these geopolitical terms, but the people were kind of always left out of the story. And this is a man, Mr. Wonderful. He, he was wonderful. He would bring me flowers every morning. And um, I was living on a houseboat and actually moving around to different houseboats um, for safety reasons. But I get to witness, you know, these extraordinary things and people let me into their lives. And how do you do that? You know, it's really, it just takes time and trust. And, you know, I think that for everybody that wants to go out and tell stories, my one bit of advice is spend time in one place. And you do not have to travel around the world. I mean, though I do, I actually end up spending years on every single story. Really, like, Go deep, because that's when the magic happens. That's when people start really showing you the truth, and um, or a truth. There's always many different kinds of truth. But you know, in Kashmir, a lot of doors closed to me. It's a conservative Islamic culture, and um, 
And so I just simply wasn't allowed to a lot of things. But, you know, I also realized when those doors close, that's just opportunity for, for something else. And that was to the women's world, because at the time, there were no women journalists really working there. And so I committed to this place and, and um, really tried to shine a light on their story. Ladies are not allowed to sit after 6.30 p.m. So there was, um, you know, I was there in a really scary time as well. And... Um, and there were militants putting uh, posters up all over the Capitol, which said, any woman who does not wear a burqa will have acid thrown on her face. And I was terrified. And um, you know, you have to understand, wearing burqas was totally, it's not Afghanistan. Women didn't wear burqas here, not the general public. And so I thought, how, how do I illustrate this? So I went to a tailor's shop. And I um, found this woman buying a burqa, and I, um, I asked to take her picture. And after a couple of minutes, she leans over and she whispers to me in English, English and says, you know, I think the tailors made this up as a way of drumming up more business. <laughs> I was like, my God, you know, she's making a joke in the most terrifying moment of her life. And guess what? Like, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like or what you're wearing. There is this universal truth that laughter connects us all, you know, jokes and, you know, and just the resiliency of people. And I feel like it is so important to, um, you know, shine a light on these conflicts and humanize those caught in the middle. Um, but we also need to take time to lift that veil and give a broader vision of what this world really looks like. Um, you know, and if you don't lift that veil, and if you only sit behind your television screen looking at the world, it looks like this terrifying place. And that somehow people over there are different than us. But I just want to say, Everywhere I go, they're not. <laughs> um, and after covering conflict after conflict after conflict for almost a decade, I was really burned out and depressed. And I, um, I took a little break. And in that moment, that's when I had this great epiphany. And I realized that actually all those conflicts are always connected to our natural resources. And they're really dependent on nature for their outcome and often are driving these conflicts. And I really made this 180 from really these people-driven stories to realizing that the biggest story out there right now is the natural world. And um, everything's connected to it. And so I have totally shifted my, my trajectory and, and the work that I do. And it kind of began in 2009 with this beautiful, magnificent, ancient creature. This is a northern white rhino. And I heard about plans. They were taking four of them from a zoo in snowy Czech Republic and flying them back to Africa in this last ditch effort to save this entire species. Because at the time, there were only eight of them, all in zoos. That was it. And it broke my heart when I met this gentle, hulking creature. And I just, um, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, this is what we think wildlife roaming the open plains of Africa looks like. But this is actually what it looks like. They have to be guarded around the clock 24-7 by heavily militarized men because the value of their horn is worth more than gold right now. And, um, you know, we are witnessing um, the poaching is not slowing down. We're witnessing extinction on our watch right now. And actually, just in March, I've been following the story and visiting. This is, um, these were the last four northern white rhinos, and they're at a conservancy in Kenya called Ol Pejeta. And then on, um, on March 18th, my friends at Ol Pejeta said, get on a plane, get here now. Sudan, the last northern white uh, male, is um, he's going to pass away. And so I rushed over. I knew that he was, getting, um, he was getting sicker and sicker. And it was really one of the most heartbreaking moments. He's such a gentle, beautiful soul. He actually like 
This is Joseph Wachiro, who's one of his keepers, and um, he just leaned right in. And, you know, they loved him as much as they love their own children. Um, they spend more time with him than their own children, and they're just the most committed people. And at the moment, Sudan passed away. All you could hear was the, you know, gentle, it was totally silent, except for people crying and the sounds of one bird, a go-away bird, chirping. And it was so heartbreaking. And, um, you know, I just, I guess, you know, um, to witness that, I, I feel like if there's any meaning in the loss of this species at the end of Sudan's life, it's that this can be our wake-up call, you know? In a world of seven billion people, we have to start seeing ourselves as part of the landscape, as something connected to it. Um, our fate is absolutely linked to the fate of these animals. And until we all realize that, that everything we eat and drink and wear and everything in this room comes from nature, until we actually get that, you know, we're on, um, I don't know. I think, that, um, I think that all hope is not lost, though. But the next image is going to be really graphic. But this is what extinction looks like. And it's not just the rhinos. It's the elephants. It's a whole host of lesser species, less charismatic species that don't get any attention that are going extinct every single day. And the more I travel, the more I see, I realize, like, oh my god, it's all so connected in this intricate web. Just like that web I talked about with Alio and Guinea-Bissau, you know, we are in this web together. And I started thinking about this story and just digging into it and thinking and realizing, like, my God, all we do is focus on the militarization, like send more guys with guns. And I just felt like the most important piece of this story was always being left out. What about the indigenous people living with the wildlife? What do they think? And so, you know, it's the people there they're the ones you know, that really hold the key to saving what's left. And um, you know, I just started understanding that there's another piece of this story that was being left out. And it turns out they are their greatest protectors, too. This is a wonderful man named Yusuf sleeping with three orphaned baby black rhinos. It's a different species, but he's there. You know, he was just um, there 12 hours a day um, in you know brutal, like tough, tough conditions. He'd get malaria. All the keepers. I mean, they're just amazing human beings. And um, there's all these incredible things happening in Kenya. This is Lewa uh, Wildlife Conservancy, and these are Samburu warriors seeing a rhino for the first time in their lives. They were as mythical to them as Bigfoot. Because guess what? Even though despite it being the most perfect habitat for these rhinos, they've become locally extinct in so many parts of Kenya. So they were so excited to touch these rhinos, and, um, and uh, they, you know, they, they were like, oh, we thought that their skin would be soft like our cows, and we thought that their horn would be flexible like an elephant. And um, their dream actually came true because they moved 11 of these rhinos to a conservancy, a brand new conservancy a few years ago, and brought them back to this place where they had been extinct for almost 30 years. And they've already had three babies. And you know, the amazing thing is you just start seeing the whole landscape healing and and once you bring one keystone species back, like everything starts to thrive. And I believe it's important to talk about the challenges that we face on this planet, but we also have to shine a spotlight on these incredible people. This is Kamara and Khalifi, and um, you know they are really heroes to me. And I, I just decided, just like the conflicts I was asked to cover 10 years before that, and asked only to focus on the violence, I just realized, nope, we're, we're missing the most important piece. You know, these stories that inspire us all and remind us of what we can achieve. And then I want to share um, another story that I know three of you in the audience have been here. Um, <laughs> this is a place called, um, it's the Naminyak Wildlife Conservancy. And um, these are Samburu warriors again who, um, you know, who have coexisted quite uneasily with all this wildlife and um, elephants in particular. But 25 years ago, 
a lot of the, you know, the elephants were poached almost, um, you know, they, they just disappear. When they, when they start getting poached, elephants are super intelligent and they go and find safer places. So they fled and guess what? The whole landscape starts to erode. You need all these animals for the ecosystem to thrive. And so, you, you know, they're really like nature's greatest engineers and um, they rip up the trees and it allows grass to grow and it creates this place where all wildlife can live. But the people were afraid, um, the poaching was going on, and guess what happened? It's such a beautiful story. The community living there finally said, like, we need to protect these animals. And, um, and they went from, you know, maybe coexisting uneasily to now becoming their greatest protectors. They created the first ever community-owned and run elephant sanctuary in all of Africa. And what that means is they have, um, they understand the value of the wildlife to them. And they, um, you know, when babies, actually the poaching numbers have gone down. It's more about climate change now because there are these wells. This is a well that um, wildlife use at the, in the nighttime. And then in the daytime, people come with their livestock and use these same wells. But as the climate gets, the drought gets longer and longer, the wells get deeper and deeper. And sometimes a little baby elephant, there's a little baby in there, they fall into the well. Now in the past, people didn't know what to do. And they would either just leave them or take the elephants out and, um, and that was it. Now they know exactly who to call and they call the sanctuary called Riteti. And um, I happened to be there during this rescue. And very often the elephants are reunited right there by the well with their mother and their own herd. They come back for them. And so the long wait begins by the well at night. And you know, it was crazy because you could hear the hyenas and the leopards just circling around us in the darkness, wanting to eat that little baby elephant. And that elephant, like the, the imprinting had already begun. She knew to stick with us, that we were gonna take care of her. So she just stuck right there. and. Actually, it was haunting. She sounded almost human-like. She kept calling out into the night for her mother. And her mother never came. So after, I think, 36 hours or something like that, um, Joseph, the paramedic, decided it was time to take her to the sanctuary. She was getting very weak. But at least now there's a place for them to go. And the other piece of this story that I love is that it's the first sanctuary that hires indigenous women to take care of these elephants. And actually on my last trip in Kenya, these young Samburu guys walked for 12 hours in these really harsh, dusty, you know, really a tough landscape for 12 hours to go to the sanctuary. And I see them, I'm like, what are you doing? He said, we heard stories that women were working with elephants. We had to see it with our own eyes. We didn't believe it. And they just, you know, they could not believe it. And it's true. And what's happening is incredible because it's just changing the whole dynamic. It's like this ripple effect. And so um, these women are incredible. I mean, so are the men working there. Everybody is. But it's just changing the dynamic. And, um, and I love this story because, you know, it is this little oasis of hope. And you realize that one community with really no power, no money, they change the destiny of their own future. And it just makes me realize that, you know, the power of individuals, it's really inspiring. And um, what's happening here at Riteti, without any fanfare at all, is nothing than the begin less than the beginnings of a transformation in the way that these people um, relate to wild animals that they long feared. And, um, you know, it's so much more than just a story about elephants. It's actually a story about people. Um, it's about all of us, actually. It's about our home. It's about our future and how deeply connected we all are to one another. And um, I'm really just reminded of all the small impacts um, that, you know, that we all have, we can have, and overcoming our fears, really to one another and to wild animals. 
Um, so I'm going to show a film. The other thing I wanted to say is Instagram is amazing. I've really embraced it as a, a new tool for, for storytelling. And so for um, Elephant Day, I made a film that is on the Instagram TV. And I just wanted to reach other kind, you know, just reaching audiences in different ways. And, you know, typically as filmmakers, we always shoot in um, horizontally. And so I've just had to rethink and, you know, throw perfection out the door a little bit and just, you know, really communicate with your audience. That's really the most important thing. So I'm going to play my video. I've been working in northern Kenya for almost a decade now looking for these stories of hope, which is the story of the Riteti Elephant Sanctuary. It is the first community-owned and run elephant sanctuary in all of Africa. And what this means is it's the community, the people living there, understanding that wildlife is so valuable to them. The goal of this sanctuary is actually to turn the elephants back to the wild because it's important that they're not really captive and kept inside enclosures. You definitely get right away. <laughs> You're surrounded by a lot of very happy Ellie's. You know, these sentient giants are nature's greatest engineers. They voraciously eat the trees and the brush and they keep the land open and grassy. These trunks have 44,000 muscles in them. The Samburu people, you know, they understand the role that elephants play. And they went from being afraid of them to becoming their greatest protectors. It's actually a heartbreaking moment when a baby is orphaned from its mother in its own herd. They arrive sometimes very vulnerable, sometimes traumatized, and often really on death's door. One of these rescues, we really didn't know if she was going to make it. And I left, and I came back three months later. Look who we found! She smelled me and came charging out of the forest with her trunk in the air, trumpeting. She remembered me, and uh, I have to say, so tune in on Instagram to see the whole story. <laughs> anyway, Natasoy is doing really well, and I miss them so much. I cry every time I come home. Um, they, it's amazing. Elephants are a lot like people, and it took a long time for them to trust me. Shaba is the matriarch of um, all these elephants, and she used to be, she sent two people to hospital and um, really aggressive. And I knew it was really, every time I go, it's interesting because this last time I knew, like I was a part of the herd. She let me so close to all, all of a sudden, everybody knew me, she knew my smells, and she reached this comfort level. And um, it's just taken a long time. And I just think it's the same thing for people and wildlife and, um, you know, everything takes time. And we just have to remember to go slow and commit, commit to whatever it is that you're working on. I mean, it just, it's all about that, um, just sheer hard work, really, and, and, and commitment. And I think that, that eventually um, things will, 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 yeah, you'll get access, everything will, the doors will open. And in the beginning, in every place I have to say, just like Shaba trying to kill me, I mean, every place you go in the beginning, people are naturally distrustful. And it's, it's just the same with animals. Um, and you just have to work through that. Um, but I want to wrap up with one of my favorite stories, pandas. Who doesn't love pandas? Um, so I was invited to be part of a foreign film crew to photograph. This is a panda named Hope as she's taking a first trepid steps into the wild forever. She was a captive born panda being sent back to the wild. And that's not an easy thing to do. So. Um, empathy. Again, I wanted to be empathetic to this panda because she must have been scared leaving home forever. Look at her. Doesn't she look scared? And so I 
wanted to hide behind a tree, and I didn't want her to see me. And so the head of the panda program, who's affectionately called Papa Panda, saw me. He came running up, and he gave me a big hug, and he said, you are going to get to hold two baby pandas. Thank you so much for thinking of hope. And President Obama, he only hold one. <laughs> so I got my two baby pandas and a whole bumper crop laid out on a blanket. I mean, it was ridiculous. Look at this little one trying to escape. And then this one just completely asleep. They were so naughty and sweet. And, um, you know, I knew then that I had my in. I knew it. And so immediately, pring, I called National Geographic. I'm like, I have the best story. Pandas. And they said, no, thank you. We did pandas eight years ago. Because in Nat Geo time, eight years ago is like yesterday. So then that's what my job is. I've got to convince them. How am I going to make this story different? You know, and today, honestly, it's not about traveling to the farthest reaches and going to the most exotic place. Because frankly, every place on this planet has been explored, really. The real secret is not where you go. It's how you tell a story. That's really what it's about. And so I had to then read everything I could, everything available about pandas. I literally started to think like a panda bear. I was just like, panda, panda, panda. Um, and I went back to them, and I pitched the story again. I said, no, 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 this is what I'm going to do, and it's amazing, and it's so different from eight years ago. And um, I convinced them. But that's really the secret, you know, and it's, it's really about getting access. That is the hardest thing about what we do. How do you get access, and how do you get people to trust you? And this is Papa Panda, who it was really hard to to get him to agree to this, but I had this idea. Papa Panda, I want to take a picture of you um, with all the pandas on top of you. And he's like, no, 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 no. These are million dollar bears, each little one. He did not want to take them away from their mama bears. And I said, no, it'll just be for 20 seconds, I promise. So imagine I'm perched on top of a ladder above him. And the whole time, he has this sheer look of fear. And he's, he just kept saying, are you done yet? Are you done yet? And finally, I said, Papa Panda, I am done. And so then all the keepers came in, and they took the babies back to their mom. And, um, and that's when he cracked his first smile. So for all of you, you know, never stop photographing when you think that the thing is over. That's always when the best picture happens. Really, never stop recording. That's, um, you know, it's always like that, even with video, too. And I'm making a film, and I'm like, we're done. That's a wrap. You take the mic off, and then the person says the best thing ever. <laughs> so just leave it, leave it running. Keep working until, like, the last, last moment. Anyway, these little mythical creatures are... I mean, we've kind of reduced them to cartoon characters in a way, right? I mean, we see them everywhere. They're ubiquitous. They're like, look, there's a book, Panda Love. Um, no, like, they're just, you know, almost like cartoonish. But once I started really learning about pandas, it blew my mind. I mean, they've been around the planet for 8 million years, and they were only discovered to mankind. I mean, the first one was captured alive in 1936. And if you look at ancient Chinese art from thousands of years ago, you will see representations of every other animal and even bamboo, but you'll never find a representation of a panda bear. They were that elusive. They'd hide out in those thick bamboo forests away from humanity. And so that's actually their true nature. They're not these like clownish little creatures. Um, and it was really hard to get this picture. I would climb up this mountain every day. And the keepers were like, yeah, you can go. You're never going to find her. And um, she was in the largest enclosure, but they're really elusive. And, um, and finally, like almost at the end of the assignment, when I'm just panicked, um, you know, this panda bear just magically comes out of it. It was a misty, misty morning. And she just walks out and does her little hey, y'all pose, and then disappears. And um, you know that's the other thing, repetition. I go back and back and back again until I get the image that I, um, I'm thinking about. But the biggest part of the story that um, was 
or the funniest part was just that, you know, for decades, the Chinese couldn't figure out how to breed them in captivity. And they were getting desperate. They were wheeling huge television sets and showing them panda porn. Not a joke. They were giving them Viagra. Oh my goodness. And um, doing everything. And it just didn't work. Nothing was working until they figured out two really important things. One, the pandas, um, they can only get pregnant 24 to 72 hours in an entire year. It's not a big window. And then the second thing is you need to give her choice. It's not like they've got Tinder or something. You've got to give her, like, you know, you can't just put any old male into the enclosure with her. So once they did that, they cracked the code, and they have a very, very successful panda breeding program. And they're born tiny, blind, deaf, a little squiggle of a thing, and um, one nine hundredth of their mother's weight. They're also one of the fastest growing mammals on the planet, and they smell like little wet puppy dogs, if you are wondering. They are adorable. But the best part of this story for me was also this. So it turns out to turn a panda back to the wild, they, don't, they forget how to be wild after one generation in captivity. So you need to train them to be wild, which means um, that they basically have very few, maybe five of them get selected to go through panda training. Can you imagine panda training? But the hilarious part was that Papa Panda said, you know, they should never be comfortable around human beings. And so um, we all had to wear these bank robber costumes. And, um, and they're not, you know, they don't go by sight, actually. Pandas go by smell. So they were scented with urine. So I got to dress up in a panda costume every day, scented with panda urine. It was really great. Um, no, but they're vegetarian, so it wasn't that bad. But anyway, so um, they, one of the most important tests is, do they know who their predators are? Do they run away from them? So they would wheel these stuffed leopards into the enclosure, and, um, and then if the panda ran up a tree, and escaped the, um, you know, the leopard, she, she passes with flying colors. And you know, it's like karate, and it's all these different series of tests. And so she passes and passes. And this is the largest enclosure. Um, and they, they literally have to go in and, and try to find her with a radio collar. And then Papa Panda said, you know, if they um, pass all these tests, they, they, it's basically like graduating Harvard. And when you graduate Harvard, you get to go back to the wild. So this was just a really incredible story. And I learned so much, you know, and I really realized that, you know, don't take anything at face value. Because if you look at all the stories coming out of China, it's always about the bad, you know, horrible environmental stories. You can't imagine anything good possibly happening. But guess what? One month after this published, the panda was taken, delisted from most endangered. Like the, the panda's doing really well there, and it's a success story. And actually, China is one of the few countries where forest coverage is actually growing. So it's just this really cool story. And I think that, um, you know, with everything you do, just go a little deeper, get beyond everything that's been written, and, um, and find a unique perspective. But um, I don't let my mom dress me up in costumes anymore, and I sometimes do find myself dressed up. Um, but you know, I think that the main takeaway here is that you know, I was on this path covering conflicts, and when I realized that it wasn't really what I wanted to do anymore, you know, I, I walked away from that. And I think that's the lesson here. Like, let life lead you where it may, but don't be afraid to stop and question and you know find a new path don't be afraid of that there's so many different paths for all of us and i think it's the best time to be alive as a storyteller frankly and i also think narratives are really super essential like it's the stories that we tell ourselves become our reality and right now we just have to um, you know rediscover what we think we already know and tell a new narrative um, and imagine a world we all want to live in. Because um, it's important to get past those headlines and remember the whole story. You know, I, um, I do think it's important to talk about the challenges of this world, but I also think it's equally as important to talk about um, you know, the things that uh, connect us 
And I've been to all of these challenging places, and guess what? In every single one of them, I found cause for hope and incredible stories that really deserve to have their stories told too. And so, you know, when Alio asked me if we had a moon in America, he really reminded me of all those things that, um, that connect us. So um, celebrate the goodness too. It's equally as important. And that's my lesson or my thing for today. <laughs> so thank you very much. Yeah. So we have time for we have time for Q and A. Thanks. Yeah, so we will now open it up to questions. We'll start with the folks here in the studio, and then we can go to some questions online. So we have a mic that we'll pass around. We've got a question in the back here. Hi, Amy. Thank you for sharing. Um, I know hard work is important as a photographer, but I was really compelled with your commentary about compassion. And for example, climbing that mountain, you walked a mile in people's shoes and you said something along the lines that that really helped you tell the story. Can you expand upon that, the, the empathy side and how that's important for telling stories photographically? Yeah. I mean, I do think that it's really easy to kind of sit and... I don't know. Um, we almost go to places with the story already written in our head before we even get there. Like we've read so much, we think we know it. And actually, you know, the one thing that I'm always, always humbled by and reminded by is that, um, no, I don't know the story. And that unless you have empathy, unless you really do walk in the shoes of others and take the time to kind of feel what what it means, you're never going to understand it. And not that I do ever. Like, I just scratch the surface of everything. But I try to get one step closer to that because that is, you know, people need to, they need to tell their stories, really. And I think the only way to do that is through empathy, not through the tools as amazing as they are, the Z7, sorry. <laughs> no, but as amazing as they are, it's not about the tech, actually. Like, I love technology, but it's not about that. It is the only, like, the most important tool to have, I believe. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Right here? Yes. Hi, Amy. Hi. Um, I just was wondering, you've, you've written your Panda Love. Um, do you have anything else in the works that we can look forward to? Oh, thank you. I have lots of things in the works. Um, and I can't talk about them all. But, um, but I'm, I'm moving more into filming. And I do eventually, I feel like when I'm a really old lady and I can't move anymore, I will, like, that's when I'm going to write. Because right now, I have all these, like, this limited time right now. I'm riding the wave, trying to tell the stories while I have that impact and have a platform and have the ability to do them. But I'm using every kind of medium I can, can from virtual reality to, I have, a, um, the, I directed, I was really proud to be part of a team. It's a film called My Africa that you can get online right now that tells the story of this place and it's in 360 degrees and it really, I think, is the ultimate empathy machine in a way. Like, you can feel like you're there. But um, I've got a film project coming up and, um, and I've got a story for National Geographic about giraffes. So now my next animal is giraffes. <laughs> so many different things. Um, yeah, and also lions. A lion story. Um, but yes, many things. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Yes. Hi, hi, Amy. My name is H.D. Nguyen. I've been a big admirer of your work for the past uh, years. And so to hear your commentary go along with the photos I've admired for so long is, was wow. one, really wonderful, very inspiring. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about your experience especially with that burqa story, as a woman in a war-torn country, what was that like and how did you handle the fear? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know how I handle fear. I just get through it. I mean, like all of us, I think you don't really realize what you're going through in the moments. And we all have this tremendous, I'm always amazed how much 
how much is inside every single one of us, like how much we can all do. It's really amazing. I realize fear is the only, like, okay, I know that there are, you know, of course people, how do I, oh, I have so many thoughts because I'm jet lagged and I'm, it's all, they're all coming in. Okay, so, so let me start. Okay, um, you know, we are our own worst enemy. And of course, you know, oh, we all have, you know, different things that we have to get through and biases. And, you know, people have always underestimated me my whole life. And I never get the jobs or the things, but I just keep going anyway. But I find that it's myself that stops me more than anybody else. And so that is, you know, not just a war zone, but just me stopping myself. But being in those places, the truth is, there are incredible people everywhere. I met the most inspiring people, sometimes in the most difficult places, and they are the ones that keep me going. I do this for them. They are so beautiful, you know? They just, I could cry right now when I think about all the things I've learned from so many amazing people who are really the brave ones, you know? I'm such a fraud because I just come in and tell stories and then I get to leave. You know, they're there, and um, they are the ones that keep, you know, and remind me of what's really important and what to be afraid of. And they are also, they've become my greatest protectors, too. When you stay in a place long enough, people take care of you, you know? So I don't know if I answered your question at all, but thank you for it. <laughs> yeah. from online, um, kind of continuing on with that safety um, uh, concept or fear concept. Do you have any particular specific tips for women who are traveling? For all solo people, yes. And for all people. Yes, for solo. all people, all everything and animals too. No, I don't know, no. <laughs> but no, how to stay safe, it's so simple. First of all, I actually like traveling alone because my antennas are totally up. I am super aware of everything going on around me. When you're with somebody else, you get into a bubble and you stop paying attention to everything around you. And guess what? There's so many little warning signs before the actual thing happens. And so there is this thing called intuition. It's real. And it's really just, I mean, I think it's just all these signs. You realize things are changing and the environment's becoming unsafe. So I'm really um, able to kind of tune into that before things get bad. Um, the few times that I ignored my intuition, it's really interesting, were like the few times that I literally almost got killed because I was like, oh, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, and actually things did go wrong quickly. So I've learned really quickly to just trust that and, and it's not paranoia, it's real. The other most important thing I do is before I ever get off the airplane, I am in touch with people in the communities I'm working in. I want them to know why I'm coming and who I am. I'm totally transparent and the first thing I do is spend, like the second I get off the plane, I sit and drink endless cups of tea and tell people why I'm there. And once I have the blessings of the, you know, the, the top echelon, it just spreads like wildfire. Everybody knows who you are. And all of a sudden, when you have their blessings, for the most part, nobody wants to mess with you because you, you know, you're welcome there. And I always sort of walk, go with the people that are known and loved in a community. That's really important. I've learned that over my, you know, 20 years of doing this. Your translator, if you have a translator, is your representative. So really, you know, you, you need to trust them and also make sure that they're gonna be, um, you know, the per that have the empathy that you would have. Because I've, I remember, like, even if they're speaking a different language, I can read through body, you know, obviously, you, body signals and, and tone of voice and all of that is universal. And I remember having a translator that was kind of, kind of yelling at somebody, and I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> and so, you know, just that's really important. But I think doing the groundwork in advance is really, really important, and that will keep you safe. And then, um, you know, then you, you all, I could go, I could give a whole class about safety, but we'll end there. Okay. So 
have to see if there are any more. Are there any other questions? We have more from the folks at home. <laughs> okay. Um, and so uh, one is, uh, this is from Robin Grant, and just you talked about finding that person that everybody in the community trusts. It maybe an example of how you found one person, or how do you do that research well, to researched. figure out? Yeah. Who? Okay. So great question. And I mean, one way is to just get online and also find local papers. So not just reading, you know, the big Western papers and magazines. Read those, but then get online because there's always local newspapers, and we're so lucky because very often they're translated into English. There's very often English editions, no matter where you're going, if you're going to a foreign place. But um, I find the best news there. And then I'll often get in touch with the local journalist or local um, not NGOs, the nonprofits working there. Um, you know, there's so many ways, but do your research, reach out to people, and, um, and really take the time to listen to them and find out what the real situation is on the ground. And then they will, even in Montana, in my backyard, I went uh, to do a story and I remember um, it was actually about the oil boom in North Dakota. And um, I went, I was driving out to this really remote place and I had gotten the permission of, you know, the elders in that community. And, you know, miles away, it took like an hour to get out to this little community. And they were like, oh, yeah, we know who you are. And it kind of blew my mind that um, that world word travels fast no matter where you are, from, you know, New York's Fifth Avenue to the slums of India. Like, literally, there's hierarchy, and if you do the groundwork, um, the people will start to know who you are. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye <laughs>